Amen. Well, good morning. Man, this is going to be a fantastic time together. I got two things for you. I'm going to split out our time, the remaining time here in two different ways. The first one is that uh, through the year of identity, I want to take the beginning portion of each message. And this one's going to be a little more extended, probably uh, maybe around 15, 20 minutes. And I want to talk a little bit about who we are as a church. Uh, what do we stand for? What are we into? What do we like? What do we not like? Things like that. And then the remaining portion, we're going to be launching a brand new series today. I'm glad that you're with us uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I will, I will get to that in just a few minutes. But let me begin with this. I want to read a statement about who we are as a family. These are kind of like family guidance, family rules, things that we stand for. And I want to just read this. And once again, uh, you can mutter under your breath. You can amen. You can do whatever you want. Uh, but I, I, I hope that what I'm sharing is your heart as well. So let's see how this goes. We are a church who strives for unity among the body of Christ. This means that we will keep the main thing the main thing. And that is the lifting up of the name of Jesus Christ. It means that we will choose to assume the best in other believers and submit our cynical spirits, our wounded hearts, and our skeptical minds to the foot of the cross. It means that we will do everything in our power to unite around what God wants and not just what's easiest for us. It means that Bridgeway will ever increasingly become known as a church that builds bridges and not walls. That we will care for all of God's children, not just those who agree with us, not just those who look like us. That whatever happened in the past, we will learn from it. But today's a new day and we, and we will, uh, his mercies are new every morning and he's making all things new. It means that we will stand on the truth of God's word, but humbly realize that we don't have the corner market on interpretation of his word. We will be a people who reach across the street and across the world. We will be an inclusive family, not an exclusive family. We will not demand that everyone be as we want them to be before they come in the door to worship with us, nor in our homes to eat with us. We acknowledge that God is the king and we are all under construction. We will choose love before judgment and our discomfort before theirs. Jesus died to wash his one bride, to lead his one flock, to be the head of his one body in all of its diversity. And we will honor that, fight to increase that, and do nothing to destroy that which our precious Savior wants most. May the spirit of John 17 be in this place. Amen? Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you about unity. A uh, lot of things have been going on. I'll give you some updates. So this is quasi kind of keeping you updated as well as sharing about the culture that we're designing here. But I want to talk for a, a few seconds about what unity is not. Unity is not sameness. Unity is not that I'm hoping that all of us compromise to the place where it's just a big blah. I'm not interested in avoiding diversity. I think that's actually the point. I think that what God did was designed differently and therefore we are supposed to be different and unified, not just all the same. I don't want all the same. I, I think that that's a waste of God's creation and creativity. 
but it is not sameness. Also, unity is difficult, and I need us to register that in our hearts. Let me say it simply this way. There's a reason why disunity exists in the first place, right? Unity is difficult. It means you actually have to fight for it. It means it's not natural to you. You don't want to do it. It means you have to press beyond what is comfortable. It means that you're going to spend a lot of time outside your comfort zone if you're going to try to build what God wants because he's not in your comfort zone. He is all outside of that. It means, uh, excuse me, it does not mean that you don't stand for truth or that you compromise truth. I need us to understand in this church, we believe that truth is truth, period. If it's truth, you don't move off that. That's not the, it's not loving to step away from truth. Now, whether or not you need to recorrect your truth, God's what God's working on, right? We all think what we believe is true. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe it. Some of us need to adjust that and understand what you think is true is not really true. So once you have truth, no one is asking you to compromise truth. That's not good. That doesn't honor the Lord. It also doesn't mean that you have to join in everything and with all the promotion of things that you don't agree with. I want to be very clear on that. I'm not asking you to celebrate something that you don't care for. What I'm asking you to do is submit your heart to see whether or not God celebrates it. And if God celebrates it, then you need to get in line with him, right? But I'm not telling you to do something that would violate anything in scripture. So when I talk about unity, this is what I do not mean. But what I do mean, I'd like to share with you now. When I talk about unity, I'm talking about unity among ethnicities. And that is an issue that we will continue to promote forward. That's a big deal to me. As a matter of fact, I want this church ever increasingly to grow in diversity of ethnicity. Amen. Amen. That means, yeah, praise God. We are a little too homogenous right now. And so we need some, we need some kingdom flavor in here. All right. So, uh, and, and when I, when I talk about that, I'm talking about all the beauty that God has designed. I'm, I'm not just talking about merely African-American and white. Uh, I'm talking about Latino. I'm talking about the Asian um, the whole portions of the world, which are so massive and, and all the different ethnicities that, that fit in between there. This, I want us to look like heaven. I, I don't want us to just look like one little part of Placer County. Um, but here's what I mean. When I talk about unity among ethnicities, I mean, embracing, appreciating and celebrating difference. I mean, changing how we do things. So that they, quote unquote, are comfortable in God's house and in our family homes. It is not loving nor servant hearted to demand that everyone else accommodate to us. That's not how Jesus did it. Jesus accommodated to his people in becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It's a commitment to being sensitive to other cultural distinctions and to listen deeply to their history. It's about friendships and family. Therefore, we as a body of Bridgeway will not perpetuate hurtful stereotypes in our conversations, nor turn a blind eye to what hurts each other. Amen? Amen. Amen. When I talk about unity, I'm talking about generations. Uh, we are blessed in this congregation and have been probably since 
the fifth year of our inception, so probably the last 15 years or so. We have been very diverse. We, uh, at any given time that I preach, we usually have children in the congregation and we usually have people that are in their 90s in the congregation. So every time I preach, I'm preaching to a vastly wide audience. All right? That is beautiful to me. That is one thing that God has gifted us with. But I think we need to go deeper. I think we need to deepen our connections. I mean mentoring across generations. I want to encourage everybody that is just above uh, young adult. Anyone that is above young adult, the young adults are craving for mentoring and guidance and someone to speak into their lives. So if you are in that category, you are in desperate need to be able to speak down into some generations and say, this is what I learned and I'm willing to pray for you. I'm willing to walk alongside you. A lot of our young families even need that same exact kind of guidance because they're pretty overwhelmed with just trying to raise the kids. I mean respect across generations, not putting down their distinctives, but seeking to understand why it's so precious to them in the first place. For example, if you are in the older generation, please don't say this phrase, put down your stupid cell phone. (laughs) And here's why. Here's why. Because you don't know why it's precious to them in the first place. Once you know that, then you can say, can you please put down your cell phone? Because as long as you think it's a stupid cell phone, you're missing the point. There's something that represents to them that you don't understand. So let's find out what it is. Otherwise, they'll eventually move you out of respect in their minds because you don't know what you're talking about. Ah, that's dangerous. In the same way, the younger generation cannot say to the older generation, why don't you just move on? Okay, that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. Okay, here's why. Until you know why that tradition is precious to them, until you understand why their hearts are so embedded in what you want them to move from, you don't have a a right to talk. So you need to hear deeply why it ministers to them, why it's such a deep part of them. Then you can say, hey, have you ever thought, what about this? Uh, For example, let me just share this and be honest with you. There's a, a number of our congregation who they sit among us and they, they love us and they invest in us and our style of music is not their favorite. And yet they're trying to be patient and kind and loving and being part of the body of Christ. It's just hard for them because they were raised in a different tradition. As opposed to saying, well, why don't you just get with the modern program? You might want to just find out why something else was beautiful to them. And maybe appreciate it, right? That's kind of what we have to learn. It's sharing our stories and listening to each other. It's not just sitting together. It's worshiping together. I think that's important. All right? Can we have an amen on that one? Amen. Amen. All right. Good, good, good. I'm talking about unity among genders. All right? Unity among genders. Uh, And if you're kind of going, well, that's funny, Lance. You keep saying it in plural. Well, there's two. Okay? So thought I'd let you know. In a male-dominated country... In a male-dominated time in history, in traditional church hierarchy, we will seek to honor women and hold them in the highest regard. We will seek to empower them to do all the Lord has built them to do and has called them to do. Putting aside prejudices, sexual distortions, and power plays, we will come together in Jesus submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, we will not perpetuate stereotypes that demean our sisters or our brothers, 
and we will see them as equal heirs to the kingdom. Despite our gender assigned roles, there's no room for disrespect. Amen? Amen. And then finally, I'm talking about unity among churches. You are a part of a church, a faith family that is driven by God to unify with other churches and believers. Your pastor, that would be me, is at the center of the healing and building relationships among the Christian community. Therefore, if that's not something that you're quite on board with, I'm going to need you to get on board. And that means that I need you to understand why it is so important. So let me begin to share with you what the things I am talking about. That is demonstrated in a very clear way by the presence of Parnell Lovelace, our pastor here in this place. Amen? Pastor Parnell was brought in, and we appreciate him, do we not? Yes, we do. Praise God. He is a gift from our Lord Jesus to to be with us and continue to build what we are doing here. But understand that he, just his presence here, demonstrates, because he came from Center of Praise, he still preaches there once a month, he's still very tied into there, he has a regional view. He and I are both a part of different boards. We are a part of a regional team that talks about what God may be doing here and how we need to align with him across many, many churches. We are a part of the City Pastors Fellowship Board together where we talk with uh, uh, groups that run over, you know, 300 churches of all coming together and trying to influence them for the kingdom of God. Um, it's, It's represented by having the Porter Brothers here last weekend. They came in and I need you. Yeah, praise God. You guys got Tekoi, Saturday night got Ellington, and so two brothers, they had two different messages, but I gave them their subject matter to talk about. They didn't even get to pick their own subject matter. They came out of their background, they came out of their church where they have their own distinctions and came into here, and it's scary. I just need you to know, y'all don't see it from up here. Let me explain something to you. There's a lot of you. And, and if you come from a tradition where you're constantly being affirmed and then a whole bunch of people just stare at you, it's super scary. All right. So they were very nervous walking in here yet because we needed them. I called out to them and I said, Hey guys, uh, would you come and take care of us? They during a special weekend of their own church. That's why they had to split it up. They came out of their area, came over here just to love on us. And so I just wanted to say thank you to them. I'm talking about the fact that I lead three different groups of young pastors in the area who have said, I would like you to invest in me and tell me what is important and what I need to focus on. Three separate groups. I'm talking about that Pastor Parnell and I, we had eight other pastors, some of which I didn't even know, come to my house this last week and I made them lunch and we just sat around and talked about what God may be doing. I'm I'm talking about uh, the Hoops to Hope and the E49 stuff that we partnered with. How many of you got a chance to either invest in or attend that Kings game, uh, the faith community came? Okay, so a couple of you. All right. Uh, Here's what happened. There there was a lot of you there that night. but here's, here's what happened in case you didn't get a chance to go there. Uh, it was a wonderful night. Not, it was just a blast. Everybody was having fun and, and the game was intense and it was going back and forth and we were having a great time watching it. And then they decided that three of us pastors would go out on the court and do something, right? So we, they split it out with us and, and they determined that 
Dan Axtell, who's the senior pastor of Resurrection Life, and I would do a three-point contest on the court. So we would go in front of 16,000 people and demonstrate that we have been spending a lot of time praying and not playing clearly, right? And it was going to be very embarrassing. So I was scared out of my mind, uh, still went down there. And every time you're sitting in the stands, you always think to yourself, why don't they just mellow out and calm down? Because you can't. That's why. Everyone's staring at you and you just don't want to make an idiot out of yourself is really what was going on. So anyway, to make a long story short, uh, uh, as we were shooting, I ended up doing things that would embarrass me forever. Um, but I mean, like kicking up my leg, like a little girl when I was shooting is really embarrassing. <laughs> so I don't play basketball for a reason. All right. Do you understand that? But I won. Yes. And the only reason I won is because Dan, who plays way better than I do, had a broken foot. Yeah. And he totally hurt himself on the first shot. Poor guy's like limping off afterwards. And I was like, gotcha, sucker. You know, anyway. Um, anyway, I, <laughs> normally I'm not that competitive, right? Oh, anyway. Uh, but I got a watch and he didn't. All right. Anyway, praise the Lord. Okay, so so then we go a little bit later on. They decide that the other pastor, Joseph Cisak, who's from Center of Praise, who, of course, is tied in to uh, Parnell, um, he was asked to do the half-court shot. And I don't know if any of you have heard about this, um, but I'm standing underneath the net down in the tunnel with him. And what they do is they do that whole thing about the whole, you know, you, if you shoot a half-court shot, you win a car and all that stuff. Well, nobody even mentioned that we were all pastors out there. So Joseph comes out, and he's the only one that can play basketball, right? So when he goes out there, he's, like, doing his little things. He's spinning the ball back. I was like, dude, come on. Just shoot the shot. You're going to miss. Everyone misses. No one's made it all year. He swished it right through the net, snapped the net. I was like, whoa, right? Yay, right? Wins a car. Everyone goes ballistic, and... um Make a long story short, he ended up adding $2,000 of his own money to shift it from a Fiesta to a Ford Fusion. And, uh, and the Lord spoke to him and said, I don't want you to keep the car. And here's what he ended up doing, the reason why I'm pointing this out. He's the only one that won all year long the car. And then um, he hears from the Lord and the Lord says, I want you to utilize it for greater ministry. So he has determined to raffle off the car. It's $10 a raffle ticket, and he's trying to double the price of the car, and all the proceeds get split down the middle. One goes to the Center of Praise Ministry for a tutoring program for illiteracy uh, for students, and the other part goes to E49 and the hoops to hope and the things about education and human trafficking and poverty issues. So once again, it was one of those things that God won that night is that everybody was coming together. It's all over TNT, it went all over ESPN. It's all over. I mean, it just keeps going bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and so this next Saturday, they're going to do the live raffle and they're going to block off the streets downtown and the kings are going to be there. And I mean, it's just this huge deal of just ministry after ministry after ministry. And so I just want to point out that if you want 
a pastor that has character and honor, you should go to COP. I kept my watch. Uh, I didn't raffle anything. All right, let's move on. Uh, I had a chance last weekend to go to uh, a conference down in L.A., the L.A. Coliseum called Azusa Now. Azusa Now, uh, it was a big deal, in case you don't know anything about it. A guy by the name of Lou Engel, uh, super nice guy, very, very humble guy. He's, if you look at him, he's straight up weird. I mean, he's just an odd dude, and uh, he loves God more than I do. God loves him more than he loves me. I mean, there's, he's just a good guy. He's just weird. And um, I've met him a couple different times now, and he was so passionate about wanting a move of God to happen in our region, especially down in Southern California, that on the 110th anniversary of the Azusa Street Revival, which historians would suggest is the most impactful, long-term sustaining move of God in our history of America, on the 110th anniversary, he sold his house to rent the Coliseum for one day. And he ended up wanting to pray for 15 hours. People ended up coming out and they got in line at 3.30 in the morning to be able to wait the whole day and they didn't leave till 10 o'clock at night. And 120,000 people registered online to go, but it rained all day. 45,000 people ended up coming out. So I'm looking out into this bowl. I went down there with a group of pastors. We were going to represent Northern California and what God has been doing up here in terms of uniting the churches. And we waited. So I was on the side of the stage um, and we waited for about six hours and we never went up. The whole thing just kind of changed. There's a bunch of other stuff that was going on, which was completely fine. Um, But what I saw there was awesome. And I just want to share with you a little bit about what I observed, because not all of you got a chance to go down there. Um, Here's what I saw. I saw, um, if we want to talk about the fun stuff, it was like I got a chance to see uh, Lauren Cunningham come out, and he's the head of YWAM. He started all of YWAM. Um, And he was talking about spreading the gospel throughout the world. Every leader that came up, like Jack Hayford, who's been around for a long, long time, Um, when he came out, they read a personal message from Billy Graham because, uh, his grandson had talked to him about what was going on and he's only awake a few hours a day. And so he said, man, I remember preaching there at the LA Coliseum. I remember everything was 140,000 people. And I remember he remembered every single thing about that event. He said, what you are doing is good. So, I mean, we could talk about the big dogs that showed up that day. Um, but it was, it was more than that. There was a whole element of trying to unite people together and heal wounds. So they started by trying to honor different ethnicities. They honor the Native American people because they said, you are our first landowners. We've all ripped off stuff from you, and so we get it. We just want to tell you that we love you. They had the Turks and Armenians pray together. I don't know if you know anything about this, but it was never highlighted for me growing up what a big deal the genocide was between the Turks and the Armenians. And so they prayed for one another about healing. They had members of the African-American community from every 
hardcore area of tension. So they flew them out from Ferguson, they flew them out from Detroit, they flew them out from all the tough areas, and they, they knelt across the stage and they prayed for the healing of our nation. They ended up having Catholic priests come out, which was quasi-ethnic and it was quasi-religious, and these Catholic priests came out and they had to be translated because they were from other countries. And they said, on behalf of one billion Latino Catholics, we want to commit to you today to unity and we want to commit to raise up the one and only name that matters, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ all across the world. And they said, may we just bow down and kiss your feet on behalf of you as the Protestants, right? And so they laid down on the stage and it's raining outside and they're in a suit and it didn't matter. And I'm, I'm just watching all this happen in front of me. And I'm watching prayer and watching all these thousands of people stand there in the rain because it's raining down and you're not allowed to bring an umbrella because it blocks other people's view and it's a security issue. So all you could wear was a poncho. And so everybody's just sitting in the drizzling rain. Sometimes it rained hard. A few times it broke. And I watched no one move. Just pray and pray and pray. I watched them try to heal up um, wounds, even in the charismatic community, understanding the four square didn't get along with these guys and the charismatics didn't like the Pentecostals and the Pentecostals didn't like, you know. I mean, it's this whole thing. He thought that, you know, evangelicals were bad. Man, we are. But that's not the point. The point is, uh, and the reason why I'm mentioning a lot of this is because, because there still needs to be an awful lot of healing between the evangelical and the charismatic movements. Because of that, there were very few evangelicals that showed up. And there's going to be a bunch of bad press about what happened there just because of who it was. And I need you to know I was there. I saw it. And I know that every leader that walked up there honored the name of Jesus Christ alone. They were humble and they loved their God so desperately. And I want to tell you what happened was good. Amen. Let's change gears. And I want to share with you a brand new series. Through the book of Ecclesiastes, I entitled the series, God Meets World. And I would like you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. We have a short intro. We are going to go through the first chapter together rapidly. We are looking at a page 553, if you can't find it. It's right after Psalms and Proverbs. Ecclesiastes is a short book, 12 chapters. And I want to tell you a little bit about it as we move into this, because this is where we're going to be for the next number of weeks. And I think it's going to be an exciting series. I hope you would agree with me. So here's how I would begin. The author of the book of Ecclesiastes wants to tell us a story. He wants to tell us a story that everything in the world is meaningless. And the problem is he's right. The world has nothing to offer. So we're going to be very clear on that. What are you going to, what you're going to see in this series is argument after argument that what we chase after in this world doesn't satisfy. Now, I would not be so passionate about this message. I would almost feel like, great, well, we got to talk about the most depressing book in the Bible. I'd be all bummed out about this series if it wasn't for this reason. We have to hear this series because we're way too wrapped up in this world. 
And how do I know that? Because I am. You all know what I do for a living. You know what my integrity is, what my character is. You know how much I love Jesus. And I tell you that every single week I'm with you. And I am way too attached to this world. I still dream about things in this world. I still chase after things in this world. I still plan of being in this world. I still love this world far too much. I have not fully embraced the identity that I'm just a foreigner here, that my citizenship is actually in heaven, and I keep loving this place. Their advertising still moves me too much. They still steer what I do and how I do it. The world influence and everything going on, I'm still being caught up in their rat race. I'm still following their modeling. And if that is going on with me and I'm surrounded by believers who would support me, then how in the world are you supposed to make it? How in the world with you being out in the neighborhoods and not having intercessor teams praying for you all the time, not having people around you to keep you in line and accountable, how are you supposed to not be enraptured by this world? So we are still buying it. I think theoretically, we all believe that the world doesn't have anything to offer, but we're not living like it. We're still worried about our money. We're still worried about our security in the stock market. We're still worried about our homes. We're still worried about our cars. We're still worried about all this stuff. We're worried what other people think of us. We're worried about all this stuff. And that's not our identity. But we still live like it. So I think we need this series. I think that in this book of Ecclesiastes, here's how I see it. I believe that the author takes a a brutal, honest look at life. If you're a skeptic, you love this book. If you're a melancholy, you love this book. If you're a cynic, you love this book. If you have any other personality, you hate this book. But it's going to talk about the futility of the fallen world. This guy who's writing is angry at all the pat answers he's heard throughout his life. Oh, I'm sure it's all going to turn out. Oh, I'm sure it's all good. Don't worry what you do matters, blah, blah, blah. He's sick and tired of hearing that. He said, no, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. He lists all the stuff that people have tried to make meaning in this broken life and then pokes holes in them one after another. It's not an answer book, it's a question book. And it asks the deepest questions of life. What's the meaning of life? Why is there so much suffering? Why do the bad guys always win? Why is there so much injustice? And where in the world is God in all of this mess? Philip Ryken, one of the commentaries on Ecclesiastes, said this. Ecclesiastes is for people who have their doubts about God, but can't stop thinking about him. What do we do? The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Truth is truth. Even if it's depressing. I understand there's some things that we don't want to look at. I know there's some things that we don't want to receive. I just need you to know that truth is truth. Doesn't matter where it comes from. That if this guy says there's nothing in the world that matters, there's probably nothing in this world that matters. And what does that mean? What are the implications of that? That's what we have to stare into. Let us begin in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 1. It begins with this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, let's stop right there. Who wrote it? We have no idea. Now, we're going to attribute it to Solomon. You're going to hear me say the phrase Solomon over and over and over. The problem is that may not be him. Somebody may have used Solomon as 
kind of their metaphor, their figure of speech, kind of their narrator. They're definitely talking from a Solomonic perspective. But was it him? I don't know. I tend to think that it was, but some scholars say it was written 600 years after that guy died. All right, whatever. But they're jumping into his skin. They're saying, listen, upon examination, it's as if Solomon walked this planet, the smartest man who ever lived, the wisest man who ever lived. And when he looked out, he found out there's nothing that matters here. All right. But who really says they wrote it? Who's the preacher? Well, understand, first of all, that word doesn't say preacher. The word is Kohelet. It's in Hebrew. It means gatherer. Gatherer of what? Gatherer of information, maybe. Gatherer of people, maybe. So why call it preacher? Why not gatherer? Well, it leans into what they think the book was about. Do you know what the word Ecclesiastes means? Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek term ekklesia. What do we know about that? It means the gathering, the assembly, and it's the most common word for the church. I just got attacked by a critter. What the heck? Dude. All right. Sorry. As Dr. Doolittle, I speak to animals. And they're all named Dude. If indeed Ecclesiastes is referring to the church and we're talking about the guy who speaks to the church, then who would that be? That would be the preacher. That's where it came from. That's why it refers to him as the preacher. He said, I have looked and here is my summation. It's verse two. The entire book is wrapped up in verse two. Here's what he says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You're going to hear that word vanity 38 times in the book. What does it mean? It's the Hebrew word hevel. It means smoke, mist, fog, steam. It means it's like breath and wind. Everything dissipates and is nothing. It's a mirage. He said all of life is chasing after and trying to hang on to the wind. It doesn't matter. Interestingly, I recently heard a poll that was given to young adults throughout America, a rather large sample size. They said, what is your most important life goal? 80% of them said to become wealthy. 50% of them said to become famous. Let me ask you this. Are they going to be satisfied in that endeavor? Why? Because it's all meaningless. It doesn't matter because how much is enough money? just a little bit more, right? You're never going to have enough. That can't be your pursuit because you're never going to arrive there. Even if you're a multi-billionaire, there's always something more to have that you don't have. And if you want to be famous, what's that going to do for you? How much is it really going to fill your tank? Because there's a lot of famous people that haven't ended well. So it doesn't matter, but that is the life goal of the millennial generation. So what are we going to do with that? He's trying to jump in and say, stop making that your goal. It's not right. And you're never going to feel filled up. There's no satisfaction there. Ah, verse three, he said, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
That word gain is yetron in Greek. It says after everything is said and done, after all the bills are paid, we're talking about at the end of the day, when you get through everything, what is your ultimate profit? What do you have left over? What do you really get in this life? It's not that the life doesn't have fun things. It's not like there's not exciting things. It's not like you don't have stuff that you can do and feel good about. But in the end, what do you gain? How do you advance in this world? He said, nothing. Verse four, a generation goes and a generation comes replacing the old, but the earth remains forever. Well, you think you're a big deal, your generation. What, were you a big deal in the 20s? Were you a big deal in the 30s? You a big deal in the 40s? You a big deal in the 50s? Big deal in the 60s? You're all just a sitcom now. Thought you made a big difference, did you? So our nation is all better now, right? Huh. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and then hurries up to the place where it rises again. It just keeps going over and over and over. We just keep spinning on a ball. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. Oh, there's a lot of activity, a lot of swirling. Nothing's going on. All streams run to the sea, but the sea never gets full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. What's his point? There's so much movement, it looks promising, but in the end, it gains us nothing. Remember I told you that there was a study done on what motivates people in work. And they found out that money only motivates if you have a job that says, take this from point A to point B as fast as you can. Then money is a motivator. Anything that requires creativity, it is a demotivator. It doesn't help. The number one motivator for work across the planet is progress. Just allow me to know that I'm advancing and I will have joy. What did he just say? There is no progress. No wonder you're so frustrated. You keep thinking that you're progressing forward, but to where? I remember when I worked in the insurance industry and I would be working on all these, I was a claims adjuster and all these different things would come in and I have a stack of files, literal files on my desk. And I remember just working really, really hard one day and just nailing down a whole bunch of them and closing a bunch of them. And somebody went and dropped a whole new stack in my inbox. I shot them. No, I didn't. Okay, I did. <laughs> Progress. <laughs> um, here's the key to the entire book. The key to the entire book is three words. The key to the entire book is one phrase. Under the sun. What is he looking at? He's looking at everything under the sun. What does under the sun mean? It means everything on our planet, everything in our universe. It means everything that is secular, everything that is humanistic, everything without God. See, God doesn't live under the sun. God lives beyond the sun. So everything he is going to describe to you and address for you is a secular humanistic worldview of what does this world have to offer without God? The answer is nothing. Verse 8. All things, all cycles of nature, all things in this world, they are full of weariness, empty exhaustion. For example, and he names three things. 
A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What does he mean? You cannot speak enough. You cannot see enough. You cannot hear enough. There is no point at which you go, man, my eye, it's so full. I can't see anymore. You can always see more. You never lock off your ear and go, man, I've heard enough. Full right here. And as I have demonstrated as your pastor, you can never talk enough. (laughs) Verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. It's the same old thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there really a thing of which you can go, look, this is new? Nope. It's already been done in ages before us. Been there, done that. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In other words, you think your nation's a big deal. You think that America runs the world. How about backing up 500 years from now? How big of a deal was America? You know, it's interesting. When you travel, you realize this. What, you, what now is a cute travel destination used to be a big deal. I think Italy's cute. I think Spain is cute. They used to run the world. And you look around and you go, so what? When I was growing up, China was no big deal. Nobody ever mentioned that China was a world power. Nobody mentioned they're a sleeping giant. No one mentioned that they have the longest history of being the dynasty that is the most powerful force on earth. Nobody even mentioned that. We didn't even care about that. At that time, Russia was a big deal. They're the superpower. And I watched in my lifetime it fall apart. I remember hearing all the stories about this mighty movement, this horrific movement that swept across Europe called the Nazi regime in Germany. And they're all gone now. You want to talk about what? Massive civilizations. You want to talk about Rome. You want to talk about Greece. Now Greece can't even figure out their own economy. Now they're known by the kids as the toga people. They're not a big deal. So I don't know what you think that you're creating and how you think you're advancing. He said, there is no big deal. It all goes away. You keep trying to make yourself a massive deal in the world and all you do is become Lord of the Flies. It's not valuable. Verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. That's that Solomonic statement. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the heaven. You know what I came up with? Quote, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Well, that's a drag. That's depressing. God gave us a bummer deal. All we do is run on a hamster wheel and die. Oh, fantastic. Thank you, sir. No wonder no one does devotions in this book. You never open it up in the morning and you're like, Lord, what do you have for me? Well, you're going to get exhausted and die. Oh, thank you, Lord. Cheers to you. Verse 14. He said, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity, all is hevel, all is wind and breath. And a striving after the wind. You see, what's crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. You see, all the broken stuff just doesn't get fixed. Every time I fix one relationship, another one breaks out. Every time I fix one problem, I got another one. Every time I solve one problem, there's three more waiting for me. 
I said in my heart, well, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, I'm the smartest guy for the job. And so I applied my heart to know wisdom and run the gamut, no madness and folly. Man, I went all over the place. And I perceived that even my experiments were stupid, striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In other words, the smarter you get, you're going to realize I'm right, and you're going to be just as bummed out as me. Is that true? Yeah. Interestingly enough, it happened in my life when I was in the era of 11, 12, 13, 14. I grew up on the Bible. I grew up where that was my guide for life. I learned how to live by reading Scripture. And I remember seeing that story where um, Solomon got a chance to be asked by God, hey, what do you want? If you could have anything, what would you want? And he said, I want wisdom. I just want to learn how to live right. Well, I took that to heart as a kid. And so I prayed almost every day for wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. Now, you can say that it was just that season of my life where you have an awareness of understanding. You don't have the maturity to go with it, but there's quantum leaps in knowledge during that era of life. And you're right. But it happened to such a degree that I became miserable. I began to know things far beyond my years. I began to have a wisdom that was unearthly. And I prayed God would stop it. Now, you may have never had the experience where you ask God to stop giving you wisdom, but I did. You can say, well, that's kind of foolish. I, okay. I just couldn't handle it. It was too much for me too fast. And I prayed for him to stop it. Now, later on, I was like, okay, Lord, we got to get that rolling again because uh, now I'm behind. So it's not that I haven't prayed that since then. It was just as a young man, I realized that the more you know doesn't make you feel better. And I think about that Stephen Hawking is not peaceful. You're like, who's Stephen Hawking? Super brilliant guy. Doesn't know God. Doesn't have peace. Here's what he says. Basic human wisdom failed. Increased wisdom failed. The world is doomed to nothingness. Now you go, wait, wait, wait. Is that what God said? Well, kind of he did. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Go to the first part of the book. Okay, zoom all the way back. It's on page two, I think. So in your Bibles, Genesis first book, very easy to find. Genesis chapter three, verse 17. Here's what God said. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What do you just say? You got frustration the whole existence, and then you're going to die. Wow, that's intense. And it's not like the New Testament doesn't back it up. Here's what Paul had to say. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What does it say? There's a whole lot of frustration. Why? Because you know there's something more. You know this can't be it. You know that this doesn't satisfy. You know people shouldn't die. You know relationships shouldn't end. You know that you shouldn't feel the way that you feel. You know that there shouldn't be this void deep down inside of you. You know that you don't like the futility. You know that you have to hang on to hope. Or else you just feel like giving up. And why do you know that? Because God built that into you. You see, you weren't built for here. Here's what Jesus said, because I'll tell you this. Is our world hopeless? Yes. But then he came. And in the darkness, the people have seen a great light. And our God came into our world to fix all that. He walked in and saw the monotony. He saw what mankind had done with his creation. And he said, behold, I'm making all things new. And Jesus Christ came in and died on the cross for our sins. He then resurrected on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and he began to turn the lights on in all of his people. He then gave us the right to become children of God, sons and daughters of God, that we would become partakers of the divine nature, that inside all that was built within us would begin to erupt. It says that Jesus Christ turned on the beautiful light that he built in. Amen. But Jesus knew what it was like. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake would find it. And here's the key. For what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Oh, there is a God. Therefore, there is meaning. But only the God stuff matters. If you want to talk about godless life, we can talk about depressing all day long. But we don't live a godless life. We live a, live a God-filled life. Here's what it says. Life will not satisfy, but the Bible says that the presence of the Holy Spirit and dwelling in his people will overflow with streams of living water. Not only will we have satisfaction in the things of God, but we will have abundance in the things of God. That's what the Bible says. There is something new under the sun. Jesus Christ came under the sun and redeemed that which was under the sun and is making all things new. So what do we do walking through this life that looks so broken? We trust. We trust that God not only sees it, he knows what's going on. Not only did he send his son to begin a process, but he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 
we believe and we trust that he's very good at his job. He is a good God. He is an excellent father. He is a tremendous shepherd. Therefore, he is going to utilize all of this and maneuver us through that which has no meaning and lock us into him who has all meaning. Therefore, our lives do matter. Everything that we do with him does matter. And it don't, doesn't just matter for now. It doesn't just matter in this world. It matters forever. Because he is building eternal things in his people. Therefore, when we go forward and we advance the kingdom of God, when we share our lives with someone else, when we spread the gospel, when we give an atmosphere for God to move, real things happen. And they will change things forever. Oh, we live as people of purpose. We live as people of meaning. Why? Because we're God's people. We are not godless. We are God-filled. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Let's go ahead and pray as we close out. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to walk among us and fix all that was broken. Lord, we confess to you, not only did Adam and Eve break it, we've been confirming that break with every move that we make. That God, that we are just as guilty, that we have said no to you. And when we say no to you and we depart from you, there's nothing out there. And Lord, the the world has packaged all their stuff to look so shiny and they keep promising fulfillment. And Lord, it just ends up being nothingness. We finally run into the mirage and it disappears in front of our eyes. So God, would you turn our eyes towards that which is heavenly, turn our eyes towards that which is godly, turn our eyes towards that which matters and is meaningful and is eternal, that we would not lay up our treasures here on earth, but in heaven. And so God, I pray that you would renew our minds, that you would remake us and allow us to imagine and dream of things that are far greater than the world can offer. Lord, fix our identity in Jesus' name.